Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And here we are, another week, another blizzard of news. Today's the day where the many, many, and I mean 20 plus Democratic presidential hopefuls for 2020 find out whether they make the debate or the first debate, second debate. The thresholds are 65,000 individual donors. That could be as little as $1. Not really uh, that much of a commitment to make to a candidate to give them $1. And they have to register at 1% in the polling. Now, mind you, these are pretty low bars, my friends. To go ahead and have to get 65,000 donors, okay. You know, that's around the country. I mean, that's a lot. Uh, Yeah, you can go online, try and... Go ahead and do that. But the 1%, your your name really just has to register some of these polls. Somebody just has to recognize your name in order to go ahead and get on there. Uh, We'll speak about polling in a minute or so because, you know, we have the president's take on polling. So we'll find out who makes the debates. But the one thing out there, and I'm going to pick on him again because I think it's enjoyable and we did it. You know, we're going to continue to do it because it's so close to home is polling that we just had in New York State with regard to you know various issues. It's called the Siena poll. It's out there. It has the only person, and look, the president is pretty unpopular in New York State. Not everywhere in New York State, but overall in New York State, President Trump is pretty unpopular. The only person who is less popular as a presidential candidate in New York State is Mayor Bill de Blasio. And I know we're trying to understand why exactly he's running, and I guess everybody should take a stab at it if they feel that that's the way to go. But if the rationale is, let me get in the race because President Trump is likely to lose and he is very unpopular president, which you can make a rationale for that. He is definitely uh, not high in the popularity ratings, but I would like to I'll address that in a couple minutes as well. Uh, the danger of kind of banking on that. But the only person less popular is Bill de Blasio. He has incredibly high unfavorable favorable ratings. And that's really, you know, where it's at is if you ask the generic voter, do you view, view this person favorably or unfavorably? Uh, de Blasio is underwater by absolutely incredible, astounding amount. And again, you got to kind of wonder. And the only reason I care is because New York City is such a complex city to run. And it's very clear that he'd rather be on the presidential trail than doing his job as mayor and managing the city. I mean, thankfully, we had a tragedy this week where a helicopter crashed into a building. And, of course, you need you know the mayor to be there. Of course, the governor rushed to the scene because he wanted to show, uh, of course, that he's uh, hands-on and he's, he's there and he knew the mayor might not be there. And thankfully, the mayor had made it back from wherever he was campaigning, but he also missed the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which is a must-attend event for any New York City politician, and he's not going to this stuff, and he's not hands-on. He never has been a hands-on manager in the city. Uh, He's even less one now, and that's just, to be one of 23 Democratic candidates, if you will, it's just, uh, and he compares very Unfavorably to Kristen Gillibrand, who's our other New York State Democratic presidential hopeful, 
Uh, she's absolutely trouncing him in New York. So you just you still got to wonder what's what's going on. And he's not the only one of the Democratic candidates that I kind of wonder what's going through their head as to why they're doing this. But he is one with a very serious job as far as I'm concerned. And being running for president is clearly detractive of his job. When you're a member of Congress, okay, so you're one of 435. How much impact does an individual member really have if they're not there? But the mayor of New York City not being president and not showing up and not doing their job, the job that they were elected and paid to do, that's an actual executive job that needs to be done. Um, Well, we'll leave that aside. I'm going to... So we'll see who's going to be in the debates. And of course, there's going to be a lottery. So it's not going to be like the Republican debate back in 2016, where you had the varsity and the junior varsity, as they called it, you know, varsity and the JV debate, where there was kind of that incredible bifurcation of that. And, you know, we'll see. We will see what happens about how that shakes out. It's going to be very interesting. But, you know, two nights of debates, who's really going to watch all that and really going to look at that? Uh, what's going on right now, however, let's say at the top is, you know, I know everybody wants to talk about Joe Biden and he's ahead in the polls and key states, the polling, Pennsylvania, the, the Rust Belt states, which are key to, were key to the Trump victory in 2016, uh, Biden is, uh, crushing the president really by, you know, 10 points or so. Uh, in fact, in Pennsylvania, uh, polling has it, public polling, that is, has it that Biden, Sanders, Warren, and even Pete Buttigieg are ahead of the president in Pennsylvania, which reports are that the president is very worried. Not sorry, the president's campaign is very worried about these polls in 17 states, 17 battleground states. They have lost tremendous ground. Uh, We don't know exactly what the polling is, although nobody has denied that the polling exists, aside from the president. The president has said that these are fake polls. He took interviews, and he says they're not not correct. They're totally incorrect. There are no such polls. Uh, The only poll that he seems to trust is Rasmussen, which has him at 50% approval rating. Rasmussen has long been an outlier. In fact, Rasmussen was actually... I think I believe said that the Republicans would keep the House in 2018. So, uh, you know, we don't like the polling for 2016. Although, as I said, you know, I've said before, it wasn't that far off. I know that everybody, but the the key changes in the electoral college were were what they were in certain states, and it comes down to ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand votes. But overall, look, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and it was a couple changes in a couple different states as turnout, and different that delivered the election in the Electoral College. So it's not as if polling is totally useless. It's not quite an exact science. Margins of error built into polling. But that doesn't mean you can dismiss it wholesale. And the president does seem to be somewhat in denial over this, basically saying that these polls don't even exist. Okay, look, we'll leave it at that. That's something for his own team to kind of deal with. Because if you don't believe the data that you're getting, well, where are you going to get other data from? 
And if you're not accurately, I, it's I mean, there's no question I, I that the Republicans have slipped from 2016. They lost the House in 2018. I mean, functional winning the Senate is has a different is not necessarily reflective of the overall popular mood. And I think if Republicans have a chance in 2020 of the White House, of the House, of the Senate, they got to get realistic about some of the issues out there. And that comes with taking data and dealing with data. And look, the president can do it. You see how skilled he is, even in the interviews where that he gives that are can be counterproductive. I He's asked, there's this bombshell ABC News interview that just came out with George Stephanopoulos, and they gave him unfettered access for about two days to the president. I'm not sure exactly why he does this. Uh, I think he, he likes these one-on-one interviews. He obviously likes the press scrums, but the White House doesn't do uh, press, uh, press briefings anymore. And the president says, well, I'll, you know, George Stephanopoulos is asking him about the Mueller investigation about Russia. Would you take, would you call the FBI or would you take the information from Russia? Would you? And the president has this nonchalant way of saying, of course I would, right? It's called opera research. Everybody does it. Now, they don't tell you that they do it, but everybody does it. He has this way of kind of saying the most obvious thing ever. It's, it's called opera research as if he is breaking news with that of saying, well, you don't understand. This is called opposition research. You may not under know that that's what it is, but and everybody does it. They, every member of Congress does it. They all take information from foreign sources. They all are collaborating with foreign intelligence agencies. Except, I I don't know where there's any basis for that. Uh, it'd be very troubling, from my point of view, for political candidates to be enlisting foreign intelligence agencies in digging up dirt on their rivals. Uh, Digging up dirt on your rival is a tried and true part of politics and political campaigns. No question about that. It's actually an important part of political campaigns. And I think one thing that we saw in 2016, as far as the Republican primary crowd, did not do much in the way of opera research on President Trump. Um. It's pretty clear that had they had, there would have been a lot more, uh, a lot, a lot of the things that we have seen come out with regard to, uh, well, just the very basics of his immigration platform. But at the same time, the Trump organization was employing illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants, whatever you want to call, say, uh, you know that in and of itself would be a troubling thing. Now the fact is that the go- that the president is so far along that this stuff doesn't really touch him. But probably in the nascent times of 2016, that would have been a relevant thing. But nobody did, did dug that up. And the truth is, the president just kind of has this amazing way in which to kind of brush it off. He says, "Well, I would take it." Would you? And then Stephanopoulos says. Would you call the FBI? He says, well, perhaps I would listen and call the FBI, maybe. And then he says, of course, I'm not calling the I've never called the FBI in my life. And then, of course, Stephanopoulos confronts him and says, well, your FBI director said, Christopher Ray, he's your FBI director, that 
you have to call the FBI if this kind of thing. And the president very succinctly says, you're wrong. And he says it emphatically, and he says it with authority. At that You're wrong. And the truth is, Chris Ray is not sitting there on the side of him to push back. It's kind of, okay, and that's the last word. And he has this way of doing it that, of course, is not well, consistent with, with any facts that we know, meaning that everybody's doing it. They just don't admit it. I'm willing to admit it and say it, and therefore I'm the guy telling you the truth and exposing this little thing to the public that everybody's doing, that everybody says is wrong, but it's not really wrong. And at the same time, it's actually, if you unpack it, from a spin, from a political perspective, it's quite incredible. It's a gift that he has. And I, I don't know anybody else who pulls it off in the same way. And I'm not saying this to be critical. I am amazed at the way that he is able to skirt around these questions because they're legitimate questions. They're real questions. I don't think anybody else does it. Nobody else, if they did it, would admit to it. Nobody takes information from foreign sources uh, it is blatantly illegal to accept help from a foreign government. You can't accept money. You can't accept material. You can't accept information from a foreign government in U.S. elections. Period. So the president is saying, and you know, this is part of the Russia thing, and he doesn't want to do it. And and then of course. This information, of course, steps all over everything else he wanted to do, because I will tell you on the Russia front yesterday, he has a press conference with the president of Poland and announces that he's going to be sending weapons and troops to Poland right on Russia's doorstep, which is something I think that Russia definitely doesn't want. And it's a get tough with Russia moment. And then at the same time, he backpedals and tosses says, well, I'll take dirt from Russia if it comes for the 2020 elections. or And it doesn't really matter. And it's really... So, you know, he kind of steps all over his own message at the same time. So we have both the we have both the idea that he is finessing around everything. But at the same time, he steps all over his message because he can't stay on message. And one interesting thing, of course, I saw in the press conference with the Polish president was the fact that he says well, something like, oh, you don't have these people new. They, there are some really crazy people out there, obviously referring to Democrats, who are investigating him. Oh, now we have a contempt of Congress for Bill Barr and Wilbur Ross over not turning over documents with regard to the census. And then, of course, the White House put a blanket executive privilege around that. And you know, the standoff continues and nothing is getting done, which is uh, tragic and unfortunate for the American people because things are not getting done. And, you know, we're still dealing with the tariffs. The president did, has a good deal with Mexico. It's a secret deal. It's going to happen. We don't know exactly. Really, it's just one entertainment show after another, except for the fact that it's really serious, that there's a lot at stake in this. And I don't think anybody out there perhaps aside from a very, very small sliver of the country that's with the president on the tariff issue. I know it looks sounds like a good idea, but you know, for some people, but it isn't doesn't gonna happen. Uh it's I'm sorry, it's not beneficial to anybody. Uh the tariffs. And I think at this point it's pretty clear that the president really believes 
that Mexico and China are actually going to pay for the tariffs, which I'm not sure who has or has not explained this to him, but somebody should. All right, let's go back to the polling question for a second. And, you know, the idea that the internal polling has him trailing in key states, not just trailing, but but behind by quite a bit. Um, you have to now think about where he goes, you know, as a candidate and tr- starts to turn the tide and turn the ship around. But the one thing to keep in mind here for all those who think that the 2020 election is in the bag for the Democrats, I I think you really got to think again. Um, The president's unfavorability, favorability has is still, let's say, 40, 56 or something like that. Uh, in in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania. And guess what? It was right about the same back in 2016. So there are a lot of voters out there who are going to vote for President Donald Trump, and they voted for him in 2016. They're going to vote for him again in 2020, even if they don't like him. Now, in 2016, they had somebody on the other side of the ticket who they didn't like even more. That was Hillary Clinton. But there's no guarantee that with a good economy, a strong economy and strong job numbers, if that continues and the president doesn't ruin it with the tariffs, that people are not going to be inclined to vote for him once again. And speaking of Michigan, and I think uh, this is a little bit that gets into or tries to help us kind of understand the president, if we can. So we know that Justin Amash, right? So Justin Amash is the uh, congressman from Michigan, libertarian, hardcore, freedom caucus guy who is the only Republican so far to call for impeachment of the president. And obviously that made the president furious and it made Republicans furious. And he has a primary now and there are people going, uh, one or two primary opponents. And the president is considering now uh, backing that primary opponent to Representative Justin Amash for, for next year in order to do that, in order to get rid of him. And I understand the sentiment, okay, you don't want to break the party, disloyalty, etc. Okay. But the focus on an individual member, it's not like there was this movement that we have to squash of Republicans running towards impeachment. You got one guy. You got one guy who is out there, and so far nobody else, but somehow this has gotten to the president's head, kind of like Joe Biden, and he's got to go ahead and try and crush this guy. The two cautionary tales is, number one, you might not crush him because he seems to be popular in his own district. And it's a one of those very right-leaning districts that has those libertarian tendencies, but maybe perhaps the president he puts a lot of effort into it. But why would you put effort and resources into a Republican primary? 
But the cautionary tale is, you did, we've seen this movie already. We saw it with Mark Sanford. We saw it with Jeff Flake. And look at the results for the Republican Party in 2016. Mark Sanford was defeated in a primary, and the Republicans lost the district. Jeff Flake decided not to run because he would be have been defeated in a primary, in most likely, and the Republicans lost the Senate seat in the state of Arizona. They lost Jeff Flake's Senate seat. So, yeah, I mean, maybe personally you can't stomach the idea of Justin Amash being out there as the lone Republican in favor of impeachment, but politically, why are you going to spend time effort and money going after a member of your own party, which is at a time where the Republican brand is suffering, particularly in a state like Michigan. And the polling in Michigan has not been particularly great. So you just got to wonder how much of this, how much the Republican Party right now is entirely personality and loyalty driven to the president as opposed to for ideas and ideals where it needs to be and that really will unite Republicans. Look, let's see. We will have to see as you know, as we move along in this regard. So, as I said, there's a lot going on in the political world. Uh, I want to focus on New York for one second as we wrap this up, wrap up this week here on Spin Glass. Uh, major league defeat uh, in New York State for real estate interests. And why is that? Why do I mention this? It's not something we necessarily mentioned. It's individual issues. But I think it speaks to a larger point here. And it does affect people in the Jewish community heavily uh, involved in the real estate industry. Uh, the real estate industry got a huge shock in Albany when the Democrats went ahead and passed a very more expansive rent control uh, group of rent control bills, basically ending uh, many of New York City. New York City, in particular, has a very extensive rent control system, although that's been loosened over the years and allowed apartments to go to market rate. Now, rent control, economically, everybody says, any economist will tell you it's a really particularly bad system because it actually decreases the amount of housing. But a lot of landlords available rental housing, that is. But a lot of landlords have been benefiting from something called you know, capital improvements, where they would go ahead and make improvements into their buildings, and they would be able to charge more rent in order to do that. Albany is now saying, no, we will not allow that. We are going to keep a cap on that. And then landlords want to invest in their buildings. Great. We're not going to allow them to recoup that investment. Well, what does that mean? That means that they're not going to get any Benefits, so therefore, they're not going to invest in their buildings, and you'll probably start seeing the housing stock deteriorate as it did back in the 70s and the 80s. Now, why does this matter? Now, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't really matter to me. I've seen a lot of people in the Jewish community, even those who are heavily invested in real estate, not understand why it's so important to be involved in politics, particularly on a state level, is if you're the old adage, I'll say it again, if you're not at the table, you're on. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. And really, what happened here is um, 
you know, the real estate industry had, you know, definitely bankrolled both Democrats and Republicans, but they, in what happened, in not recognizing how far left the Democrats in New York have gone and how, uh, how much, how demonized the real estate industry was, uh, they have really put themselves into a very disadvantageous position. And what they should have done in many of the industry is rallied others in their friends, neighbors, etc., to get involved and to focus on these elections and focus on why it's important to participate in the electoral process. I know so many people who have a lot invested in heavily regulated industries and they themselves do not vote and they and their families don't vote and they don't participate and they don't uh, have a voice. Yeah, they give money, they give a check when when sometimes asked for it. If there's a, a direct, you know, if somebody if somebody if there's a direct connection that they have to a individual politician, but they're not participating in the process. But we see from the tenants, the people who are renting and the people who are activists, and they said they are participating in a very significant level. And the one thing out there is the, I wanted to bring out of this is it's not just about money. Money, yes, definitely has a huge impact on politics, but activists. And those who are engaged on a daily basis and are there and are pounding the pavement and protesting and standing outside of uh, individual legislators' offices, they have a big impact as well on the process. And the grassroots, in many cases, is going to be is very hard to defeat unless there is a popular the silent majority. If it's out there has to stop being so silent on this issue. And unfortunately, I look, I'm not a believer in rent control. It goes against my principles. But expanding it to this degree, I think overall, will have a long-term deleterious effect, a negative effect on New York City and New York State and investment. And overall, this is an industry that really funds through its taxes a tremendous amount of New York State. So we shall see as the as this goes along. But this is a huge defeat for uh, those with who who had perceived power for so many years, meaning that industry. And we see also a trend towards populist movements. Um, and dare I say, in this case, you know, a socialist populist agenda that you have in New York State on the part of some Democrats. That's it here. This week on Spin Class, Michael Fragan here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.